This is Fine Rambles, number 95. So, I was in the ER about two months ago, and last week, (laughs) I finally got a bill from the doctors. It was a large number, a number that I was surprised by. More than anything, looking at the bill, I did not understand anything that it said. And so I called the number on the bill. The first thing I learned is that because I was traveling, the ER was out of network. And because Obamacare only has EPOs, and I still don't know what that stands for, basically, if you go out of network, you're completely fucked. My insurance did the following. It, it sent me the bill, and it told me how much it would have paid if it had been an in-network claim. And they took that amount, which is the, quote, allowed amount, out of my deductible. But the bill was for multiples of what was allowed. Right, because in-network, they can negotiate and they provide a lot of volume to those facilities so they can get a much better deal than the headline charge master price that you have to pay out of network. And I asked essentially this question. Let's say the emergency room had billed me a million (laughs) dollars. And in-network, let's say it would just have absorbed the deductible you're saying I would have to pay the full million dollars out of pocket. And the insurance rep thought for a minute, and then she said, yes, you would have to pay the million dollars. (laughs) Which is insane. And it was a nice reminder of just how broken our healthcare system is and why so many Americans have to file for bankruptcy because of healthcare costs. And way worse than that, they don't seek the medical care that they need because they know the bill would ruin them. Here's something else I learned. Let's say you go to a hospital. Everyone in that hospital may work for a different company. So you may get bill after bill after bill from different organizations. In my case, I got two bills so far, (laughs) knock on wood, I got one from the doctors and one from the facility. And this is because hospitals hire doctors as contract employees. And I'm assuming that's because of liability. But what that means is they're all independent contractors. And they can all bill you independently. And often in a hospital, different people are in network or out of network based on your insurance. So literally... Someone could come in and run a test on you, and everything else that happens could be in-network, could be, you know, in theory, covered under your insurance. And this one guy who comes in and runs a test could just be some independent contractor who doesn't tell you, runs the test, and then bills you essentially whatever he wants. It could be $5,000. It could be $50,000. There's no constraint on the amount of money he can charge. And you're in no emotional or mental state to be able to, you know, read them the riot act or, (laughs) or, you know, 
ask them 20 questions about the intricacies of healthcare insurance. And what's really funny about this is that the person I was talking to just acknowledged all of this really calmly. Because I would say things like, wow, is that really the way it is? And she would agree with me. She would say, you know, yeah, I see, here's an example of something horrible that happens. And I see that happen thousands of times a year. (laughs) And so I finally just started being really honest with her. And I said, help me understand something. Does this mean the next time I have an emergency, when I'm traveling, does this mean I should leave my wallet outside the hospital? And she said, yes, that's probably the right, that's probably the right thing to do. Because the hospitals have a fiduciary responsibility to treat you, and they are not allowed by law to inquire into your ability to pay ahead of time. And so why wouldn't we walk in without our wallets and give a fake name and refuse to answer questions about our address or our social security number? Why would we willingly help a hospital that is a nonprofit destroy our life when they are supposed to be the ones helping us? I mean, this is how dysfunctional the system has become. And, you know, this part of my story has a relatively happy ending because I asked her, what would you do in my situation? She said, I'd call up the doctor group that billed you. Remember, not the facility, just the contracted employees that are doctors. And I would ask for a cash discount. (laughs) Essentially, you should throw yourself on your knees and beg the mercy of the people who treated you. And I said, thanks. That's really good to know. I mean, I don't really have much pride. (laughs) So I called them up and I basically groveled for a little bit. And I told them how much my insurance company would have allowed for what had happened. And the woman put me on hold and she came back very quickly and said, look, we're just going to bill you that amount. That's not a sustainable system where it's case by case and you have no certainty and you have no predictability where you could be bankrupt or just a little bit annoyed based on the whim of some back office, nameless, faceless bureaucrat at an organization halfway across the country. It just doesn't work. And it certainly doesn't work right now. Because, you know, give the coronavirus its due. It is exposing systems that don't work. It is exposing fragility in supply chains, in governments, in the responses of healthcare institutions and bureaucracies. And, you know, there was a story about a guy who was worried that he had the coronavirus and went in proactively to be checked. So he did the responsible thing. The test came back negative and he was billed (laughs) $3,500. No good deed goes unpunished. And when no good deed goes unpunished, people will stop doing good things. They will stop doing the right thing. And right now, I don't expect anyone who is sick to do the right thing and, and seek treatment in a system that acknowledges that it will often try to destroy you if you seek help. You know, I think I've done two podcasts now where I've discussed being ill. And I felt really nervous doing both of those podcasts. And, you know, I think I'm a pretty normal person. So my guess is other people feel uncomfortable or nervous or some anxiety discussing their illnesses as well. And so at this point, 
when you ask someone how they're doing and they say, great, (laughs) you know they're lying. You know they're full of shit because they don't want to share their suffering. They're afraid. They're afraid you'll reject them or that you'll be dismissive or that, you know, you don't actually care. You don't actually want to know how they're doing. But the result is we talk to people and we get this very shallow view of their lives. Oh, I'm doing great. That's an Instagram view of someone's life. That's a resume view. And then we start to think that other people's lives really are seamless. And then we wonder what's wrong with us. Why am I uncertain? Why am I anxious? Why am I struggling? Why am I suffering? Am I the only one? But that's not true. Everyone is struggling. Everyone is suffering, probably especially if they don't admit it. Just in the last week, talking to people, I've heard three or four horror stories. Someone I know, their child, a very young child, got sick and they took the child to the doctor And the doctor basically scared the living bejesus out of them and told them it might be this life-threatening disease based on very little evidence. But they're parents and they love their child. And so the only sensible thing to do is to freak out. So they checked the child into hospital and they spent the next 36 hours in a room with their child, sleeping on mattresses, watching as the disease progressed And then, thank God, it cleared up. But that's 36 hours of hell. Because someone that they trusted, or the system told them to trust, scared them. Another person I talked to, he described going through benzo withdrawal. And I had never even heard of this before. But the way he described it was absolutely terrifying. He had been prescribed a low dose, and he had asked about side effects, and the person who prescribed the benzos said there was nothing to worry about. And then when he tried to get off the benzos, he said he felt like he was dying. Weird pains all over his body, headache, tingling in his extremities, fatigue, panic attacks, severe anxiety, chills, elevated heart rate. And this went on for a long time. And it was a constant fight just to get off this low dose of something he had been told was not dangerous. Someone else I talked to, this was an Uber driver. He had come from Haiti when he was a child. And they had finally come because a hurricane had flooded their village and they had almost drowned. And he had a very neglectful father. And an aunt, I think, eventually brought him and his siblings to this country. And from the age of 10 to 21, he did not see his mother. He had no contact with his father, living in a strange country with very little support. Another person I talked to, at one point, his father was so angry with him that he threatened to kill this person, and he threatened to kill himself. So imagine your father comes to you and threatens your life and threatens his own life because of something that's gone wrong in your life. And maybe you could argue these are the exceptions. But I don't agree with that. Because if you start to talk to anyone, even for a little while, and you ask them about 
their lives, what's really going on, if you ask them to tell you about their struggle, if you are genuinely curious about their suffering, I think most people will tell you. And every time they do, I am amazed at how strong they are, how normally they lead their lives despite what's going on right beneath the surface. And, you know, it makes me think of Brene Brown. Some of the stuff she says rubs me the wrong way. And often it's those things that rub me the wrong way that later I really take to heart. She said something a while back. I think it was, assume other people are doing the best they can. And part of me said, you know, that's bullshit. People aren't trying that hard. They could be trying a lot harder. And then part of me said, well, what if that's wrong? (laughs) What if this really is the best they can be doing right now? For reasons you don't even know. We know now that 70% of the morbidly obese suffered sexual abuse as children. And for a long time, I looked at those people with a raised eyebrow and I said, well, they should be doing better. But I can't even imagine what I would do if I had been sexually abused as a child. And I find that my ability to judge people just vanishes when I learn the details of their suffering. You know, what Brene Brown said, assume other people are doing the best they can, I think that's essentially a restatement of what Jesus said in the Bible, where he says, love your neighbor as yourself, which is a sort of more personal way of restating just the golden rule, which is treat others as you would wish to be treated. And that doesn't necessarily mean what we normally think. It might mean something as simple as just trying to understand their struggle, trying to understand that they are doing as well as they can at the moment. And if we could understand the context, I think we would be much more forgiving. I think we'd be much more forgiving. That's all I got this week. I'll catch you later.